just ask you to bow your head one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to submit this time to you and say once again, Lord Jesus, confess my inadequacy to bring your word. It is only by the Spirit's enabling power that anything of merit will pass the lips of your servant today. And it is also your enabling power that allows us to hear, now just with physical ears, but the ears of our heart, the life-changing revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray as we open the pages of your scriptures this morning that you might transfer them, Lord, onto the tables of our heart, that they might produce fruit and that you would make the soil of our heart fertile to receive the word of the kingdom, that you might be greater glorified as a result of our studying your scriptures, proclaiming them to our souls and then consequently to our families and to the world wherever you call us to this week. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 42. While you're turning there, I'll give you just a title and a brief description. Today, I've titled the message, Song of Descent. It's a playoff of a term uh, to catalog another group of psalms, not Psalm 42, but in fact, a few other psalms later in the Psalter, Psalms 120 through 134, which are called Psalms of Ascent. And these were the psalms that were sung when people were joyfully anticipating the worship of the Lord. More on that in a moment. But just in gratitude to the Lord and in celebration of His Word, would you stand with me for the reading of the Word and we will read Psalm 42, all 11 verses here in preparation of the delivery of the Word today. The title of this morning's psalm is to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. In verse 1 we read, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go through with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. At your breakers and your waves, your breakers, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Verse 11, why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This psalm certainly reads like David's writing. And I'll probably mention three or four times by accident, David is the author of the psalm because he is so frequently named as such in the psalms that precede Psalm 42. 
However, we do not know who the author of this psalm is, aside from its primary author, namely the Holy Spirit. That much we do know, and this psalm certainly evidences and testifies to the Spirit's signature and authorship. It is clear, however, in the context of this psalm, the extenuating circumstances of the author have prevented him, in Psalm 42, from experiencing the consolation, the blessing, and the privilege The consolation, the comfort, the blessing, and the privilege of corporate worship or the gathered assembly of God's people at either the tabernacle or perhaps the temple. And that was the rendezvous point in the old covenant of divine favor, the place where the people of God would meet the presence of God and have assurance of their own redemption as the sacrifices and the ceremonial pictures of salvation unfolded before their eyes. But in the circumstances under which this psalm was written, those conditions were denied the author for at least a period of time. Now later, in the book, as I mentioned before, Psalms 120 through 134 are categorized as psalms of ascent. There was a time during the year, periodically, where all the faithful followers, people, joined together in a common goal to worship the Lord and would travel to Mount Zion to the place of God's meeting with man, to the tabernacle, to the temple. And here they would come and they would ascend the hill of the Lord and there would be joyful odes, psalms that would celebrate this pilgrimage to the temple mount for periodic worship. Psalm 42 could perhaps be labeled as a psalm of descent. It's a psalm of sadness walking away from the hill of the Lord, Mount Zion and the temple. Perhaps as it more mournfully exudes the emotions of being denied of being denied worship opportunities with the corporate people, it illustrates by contrast the sadness, the anxiety, and the depressing state it would be if you were indefinitely excluded from the favor of the Lord and indeed even from the worship of the Lord with His people. Yet there are hopeful odes in this song as well that though the author is estranged and stranded from the normative circumstances of meeting God. He is nevertheless not alone. And God's provision is with him even in the wilderness. Psalm 42 and 43, if you continue reading, you find that there's similarities. And we are almost positive that 42 and 43 were once one continuous psalm. This becomes quite clear as the literary evidence repeats the ode that is twice repeated in 42 again at the end of Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul, we read in Psalm 43, 5. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The poetic impact of Psalm 42 pulls the reader and Psalm 43 both They pull the reader, as it were, into a seagoing vessel with the author. And imagine this picture for a moment. You climb into a boat with the author, and life sometimes is like a sea. I sometimes like taking refuge in a boat on a stormy sea. We're bobbing together in a sea of tumultuous unrest, in an ocean of what appears to be uncontrollable chaos, at least to our senses at the moment. And so disillusion, uncertainty, and anguish, they're like waves tossing us to and fro, back and forth. Yet think of 
these times in this psalm, three times between the two, where the tether to the anchor of our soul snaps taut. The vessel's rope snaps taut, confirming that we are tethered, that we are tethered to the anchor of our souls, our God, and our salvation. Psalm 42.5, 42.11, and 43.5 repeat the exact same words over and over again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. And so I see the picture, the poetic uh, psalm here, the song giving us a picture of being blown about. And every once in a while, as you're blown to and fro on the waves, the surface of the ocean, there's that reassuring tug when the rope hits the anchor of the soul. In between those times, there certainly is fear in our natural understanding that the waves will overtake us, that the rope has broken free, that we will be adrift and shipwrecked, uh, and our faith becomes so much refuse on the rocks of yonder harbor. But indeed, such is not the case, and three times it is proven thus in these two psalms when the author finds refuge in the covenant promises of God, even though he can't be at the exact place of God's favor, at least what is ordinary the case, when he says hopefully, prayerfully, and faithfully that God, the Almighty God, is indeed his salvation and his hope, and he shall again praise him. Let us note in two messages, this morning we'll cover two points, and then there'll be a third heading next month that we'll cover in Psalm 43, but let us note how the author dips his pen, as it were, in three different inkwells to illustrate three aspects of a kind of holy separation anxiety from the things of the Lord that otherwise provided him assurance and security. First of all, he dips, as it were, his pen in the inkwell of emotional disquietude. What does it feel like to be in danger of being separated from the rock of your salvation, or at least not to have those normal reference points at your immediate disposal that God has given you as gracious signs that you are safe and secure in Him? Well, it certainly ought to make us feel discombobulated indeed. A certain emotional disquietude, a kind of anxiety and at least a temporary concern. Lord, I'm grasping out for you because I'm not sure where I stand unless you bring the rock, Jesus Christ, underneath my feet again for sure footing. The second inkwell, and these are the two we'll cover this morning, that the author dips his pen into to illustrate this kind of holy separation anxiety is the temporal circumstances represented by where he is in exile, this land of Jordan and these mountainous places and the picture of a chaotic sea that we'll go into as we unfold, as we kind of unpack this psalm this morning. So with that introduction, let's let the heading be illustrating holy separation anxiety by the following. Number one, by emotional disquietude, and then the second major point will be temporal circumstances And in verses 1 through 5, let's see, let's get inside the head and the heart and see if we can't relate to the author of this psalm and see what it's like to experience the emotional disquietude of being separated from the place of God's favor, at least for a time. Reading again in Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And again, a refrain, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. As the author of Psalm 42 dips his pen in the inkwell of emotional disquietude, first of all, we observe an escalating fervency, a kind of compounding desperation a famished state of soul, a thirst that drives him in anguish and fervor and anxiety and zeal to the places of refreshing. He compares the terms of being ostracized from the presence of God to that which a deer experiences when he has been famished, running perhaps from pursuing prey, and finally finds solace on the high places of the mountain and drinks deeply from the streams of refreshing. Streams of water that fill him with the life-giving source to just breathe another breath and then to continue on in his flight from his pursuers. We read in verse 1, "...as this deer pants for flowing streams." David can relate to these circumstances. There I go. The author can relate to these circumstances because his soul pants for the Lord. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the Lord? Perhaps the first lesson to draw from the testimony of honest weakness that we see in this psalm is a kind of honesty that is not very common today. Sometimes I find myself wanting to put on the best face of Christianity I possibly know how. It's as if if I drop my guard for a moment and admit my desperation, it's something like fearing a rabid dog might smell fear. And the doubts in my own soul or even the onlookers of unbelieving family members and friends might say, see, see. You don't really have a strong faith in God. And although, Dave, or although the author was honest with his condition and his sin, pouring out his heart, and we see that here, we do indeed also see the testimony of mockery and jeering against him. He says, or people say of him, this throng, or uh, they say, when shall my tears have been my food day and night, he says in verse 3, while they say, namely those who are on the outside looking in, observing his weakness and plight, they say to me continually, where is your God? And so David was experiencing that kind of adversity. But he also had a faith so strong that he was able to admit weakness. Here the author groans with a vexation and a consternation of soul. And he's holding out hope for full rest and satisfaction in the Lord. And this, we know from the greater testimony of Scripture, is indeed an accurate state of not just those times when we feel like we are in a bad way because of pressing circumstances, but indeed the time from our new birth 
to consummate glory that we experience in this life. In other words, when David paints in beautiful terms, the author paints in beautiful terms, this escalating sense of fervency, this sort of groaning and compounding desperation that he must have the Lord, he needs the Lord, it reminds us of greater truths in Scripture. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but I'll remind you of language like this in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, we find creation itself falling into this category of fervency for the Lord and indeed us as people. It says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? You see what we are waiting for with earnestness, We're groaning and there's a longing within our soul that won't totally and completely be satisfied until the promise of glory, resurrection of glory is ours in Christ at the final day when we are with Him in heaven. It's a kind of groaning inwardly where we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and for the redemption of our bodies, even as our spirits and souls have been redeemed. So the author of Psalm 42 is well acquainted. He's finely tuned. His uh, poem here has reached and touched the resonant pitch of creation itself and every redeemed soul that cries out for the satisfying promise of completion in the Lord's power to redeem. He's had a taste of the Lord, but he is not satisfied. He's had an assurance of the Lord's favor on his life in part, but he is grasping and desperate for more. He will not be content until the windows of God's provision are reopened to him where he can worship in the corporate setting. Why? Because it anticipates the corporate setting of glory one day, which is promised for him ultimately in Christ. Why do we come and worship on a Sunday? And why should it be seen as a joy and not a chore? Well, if we practice it rightly, the answer to that question is in part because it's a closer environment to heaven than we appreciate or experience during the week. When we gather together in joyful song to praise the Lord as His people in this place today, it is something closer to what we were made for and something closer to the promise of our redemption And there is a joy and an assurance and a confidence that comes from that environment that is just not available outside the fellowshipping, gathered assembly of the church of Jesus Christ. And how much more we ought to love and value these conditions than even the corporate worship that the Old Covenant order boasted at the time when Psalm 42 was written. So in the inkwell, out of the inkwell of emotional disquietude, we see this fervency to return 
to the best expression of future glory available to us right now, namely the worship of God's people together. Secondly, as the emotional effects spill onto the page and through the music of our author, we find here written down in candid ways the bitterness, and we could say perhaps the bittersweetness of vulnerability. There is a silver lining to this text as we read that the psalmist has come under a certain measure of affliction and persecution. Before we mention what that is, let us read again verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. There's a sort of bitterness there, the salt of his own tears, seen here pictured as his soul sustenance, leave him wanting. And there's a certain sense of anguish that this language communicates. It's not just a temporary situation, but it seems to be indefinite and ongoing. It's day and night, we read in verse 3. While they, namely his adversaries, no doubt those who are pursuing him, the naysayers, say to me continually, where is your God? Here is on display a sort of bitterness, a bittersweetness of vulnerability. When we align ourselves with the Lamb of God, who in his own meekness and humility was willing to take stripes and to be killed indeed at the hands of wicked men, men he could otherwise call a legion of angels and destroy with the snap of his divine fingers. When we realize and associate with this man, Jesus Christ, we are also associating with the fellowship of his sufferings. So in this intermediary time between now and when we're called home to rule and reign with Him, ultimately and finally in glory, there is a kind of bittersweetness of vulnerability that that places us in. However, we know that there's also joy. In joining with the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, we read in the book of Hebrews that Christ Himself for the joy set before Him endured the cross. We know from the apostolic testimony that the fuel and fire and tenacity of those who brought the gospel forward did so because they counted it joy and they counted it a great privilege to be worthy to suffer for Christ's name's sake. Thus those jailed broke forth in song and those whipped joyfully returned to preaching the gospel immediately upon their release from prison. And so this bitterness of vulnerability is also a bittersweetness. It is a sweetness because we can more closely identify with our suffering Lord. And we know that there was purpose, purpose unfathomable to great degree in His suffering, and so there is in ours. There's also something of a silver lining that we see, not only in verse 3 of Psalm 42, but also in verse 10. We read more about the persecution in verse 10, a kind of parallel verse As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, our author records, while they say to me continually, where is your God? They see him in his desperation and his weakened state of soul and emotion, and they say, where is your God? O bold, brave Christian, O strong, mighty warrior, and their identification of you with your God has become a slight, they feel, at their lip, on their lips as they bring to you the kind of mockery they brought to Jesus our Lord on the cross. When they see us inflicted with 
the poetic equivalent or what is poetically pictured here, a deadly wound and our bones, the vulnerability and the common weaknesses and things that we all endure in this life, those who are against Christ feel that they have reason to taunt us. And so the adversaries and the spirit of the Antichrist rises up and says to us continually, where is your God? But remember, when we hear calumnies of this sort, even coming against us, remember, part of what we mentioned before, being counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name's sake, but also there's a silver lining in as much as there is something in us to persecute. At least there is a testimony of Christ or a testimony of an association with the Lord. You see, inadvertently, even the adversaries of the author of this psalm were testifying to God. They said, where is your God? Whose God? The author of this text. Where is your God? And there is something even there that has a kernel of joy embedded in the suffering. Praise God that we have something to be persecuted for. If we are testifying to and standing on Scripture, praise the Lord. Consider to help make this point a little more clear, uh, this illustration. Maybe you remember the times when under your parents' roof, if you were a rebellious kid like I was, where you were grounded and you couldn't uh, have certain privileges for a period of time. And these days, maybe you tell your kids, okay, no video games, no Angry Birds for a week. You're going to be in your room um, when you would otherwise be playing games free time. You can't visit the neighbors for a while until you realize the consequences of this sin that we're holding you accountable for. Imagine sending a child to his room and giving him these terms of punishment. Okay, Junior, go to your room. What you did to your sister was deplorable. It was very evil and it was sinful. Now, for the next four days, there will be no Bible reading, no Scripture quoting, no communion, no corporate worship, and no listening to the Word of God preached. For four days. How many children would consider that a punishment? How many children would miss any of those things? Let's fast forward a little bit. Would you consider it? Would we consider it? Would most adults consider it any kind of punishment at all? If they were held accountable for something and and the punishment that, that they were prescribed was that they wouldn't be able... They wouldn't be able to fellowship with God's people for a period of time. They wouldn't be able to read the Word of God with His people. No communion, no corporate worship, no listening to the Word of God preached because of what you did. Now that's just a hypothetical situation to try to draw out the condition of our heart. Do you see here the condition of the heart of the author here? For him, the worst punishment, the most deplorable condition that he can imagine himself being in is one where he would be separated from the public declaration of the Word of God and from the corporate worship of his people. For him, that was the worst thing imaginable. Is it for us? Is it for us? You see, when we are persecuted by the world for what we believe, if we continue to stand on, if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, at least we can see that there is something inside of us worth persecuting. And even as we feel that pain 
of not having the same freedom, even if it is a very real persecution that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are incurring right now, if we long for what is denied to us because of the conditions on the ground around us, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit has changed our affections and changed our heart. Would it be painful for us if we could not go to church for a period of time? Unfortunately, these days, many people deny themselves this means of grace and this glorious opportunity for weeks, even months on end, even as confessing believers. But what does that say about their heart? They certainly do not share the heart of the author of Psalm 42. To further make this point in building on this, we see the testimony of holy sentiment in verse 4. We see the condition of the author and something about the way he's wired that these circumstances force out of his pen as he writes. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. He says, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. There is a testimony under these conditions of being ostracized from the temple for a time or the tabernacle of a testimony of sentiment. Let me ask us another question. What are your fondest memories? When you sit around the table and reminisce with relatives, what are those times that make you smile and laugh and that you're most likely to recall in that good company of relationship? When you get together with your best friend, maybe a roommate from college, what causes your memory to be jogged and for those feelings of nostalgia to rush back into your heart? Are they things that you could say fall into the category of the author of this psalm? What are your fondest memories? We could ask the author. He has told us what they are. He said, I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. I remember the times when I would lead a whole chorus of worshipers in song, singing praise to the Lord on our way to worship God at the temple. Oh, to return to those glorious days, the good old days of singing with gusto and fervor and unity, the psalms of ascent as we would go to worship the King of Kings on Mount Zion. This was the testimony of holy sentiment. What are our most fond memories? He would lead them in procession to the house of the Lord and he remembers glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. Festivals are not strange to us culturally. We celebrate many things. The tragedy is is more often than not they are absolutely trivial. We celebrate celebrating in this culture. We look for every excuse and any excuse to join in mirth and merriment and feast and song over the most ridiculous things. And when we do that, we run the risk of sowing seeds of sentiment that indeed are not glorifying to God at all. But instead, attaching our zeal, our affections, and our joy to something that is temporal, ridiculous, will perish with the using, and will ultimately burn in the end. One of the messages from Psalm 42 is invest in your sentiments and your memories and your affections and build nostalgia around things that at the end they will survive the trial by fire. Not things of wood, hay, and stubble, but things of gold and precious stones. 
things akin to processions to the house of the Lord, glad shouts and songs of praise. Let us learn from this psalm under the conditions that move the author to write, to renounce the idea, the idolatry of nostalgia devoid of the glory of God. Now this is something that can happen in your own life and sanctification regardless of what your most treasured memories have been to this point. And I can testify some to that myself. Several weeks, weeks ago, Tanner was baptized. That moment was profound. There were some really neat pictures that we posted online that I, that I thought captured the moment well. The sun was coming down in a cold, brisk day, and we had just come out of, this, out of the water that was very chilly indeed. But there were smiles and across our faces and warmth in our heart. And I was moved to tears when Tanner was sharing his testimony prior to entering the waters of baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is a touchstone, a memorial point, in part, for the believer to attach his sentiments to something glorious, to replace the trivial with something profound, that he might remember that moment with significance. How many of you remember your own baptism? How many of you consider baptism and what it indeed is? How about the ordinance of communion and what is therein expressed? Do we value and treasure those moments together where we commune with the saints and we do what? We remember and proclaim the work, the finished work of Christ. I remember now more vividly than I used to even in my more wanton teenage years, my own baptism. And I was baptized when I was like seven. I remember in my grandparents' home that they built the bathtub a little higher with a sheet of uh, plywood with poly over it. I remember clearly there was construction paper cutouts of palms, like date palms or whatever, on the back of the bathtub. And I'll never forget that moment. Acts chapter 8 was a text that somebody read, and that was the account of the Ethiopian returning to his home country, interrupted by the Word of God and by the presence of the Apostle, and being baptized in root. And that was the picture. And for me, it was profound. And the Lord has replaced that memory with some other trivial ones as a more important touchstone of nostalgia. That in those times I might remember and pour out my soul to the Lord and think about His grace extended towards me. That more and more aspects of our thinking might be accountable to the glorious hope we have in Christ. And so we have this message in our psalm today. And finally under illustrating the holy separation anxiety that the psalmist feels as he dips his pen in the ink well of emotion. He has given us, as we've said, this escalating sense of fervency, this clear, candid vulnerability. He's given us the testimony of holy sentiment, but fourthly, and most hopefully, he gives us a portable hope, something to take with him, and therefore we can take with us regardless of circumstances. Though he was ostracized and exiled to whatever degree in his physical circumstances, there was a refuge he found within his soul and returned to it over and over again like that tether line to the anchor in a tumultuous sea when it reassuringly snapped taut and let him know that he was fastened by covenant to his holy Lord such that he would never let him go. Verse 5, again we read the refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God.
So long as the psalmist had this assurance on the inside, it didn't matter what was going on in the outside, on the outside. He could always hope in the Lord, such that even his anxieties that he was wrestling with and the weakness of his own soul and flesh, the frailty that he wrestled with candidly in this psalm could then be let go. He could take on the yoke that is easy and the burden that was light and find rest for his soul. He could ask the question and find an answer. Why are you cast down on my soul? The answer, no good reason. Why? Because I hope in God. For I shall again praise Him. After all, He is my salvation and my God. Secondly, this morning, our second major point. The psalmist now shifts in the second section of this psalm, which is divided kind of in two parts. Verses 1 through 5, which close with the refrain. And then verses 6 through 11, which close with the repeated refrain. He switches to different imagery, and he recalls his circumstances, even the geography. And thus he dips in the inkwell of temporal circumstances to illustrate some of this holy separation anxiety and where again he finds refuge. He says in verse 6, B, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mizar. If I'm pronouncing those names right. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and Mount Mizar. And here we have three, at least, meaningful places represented. And perhaps the points in between, as presumably our author is wandering under these circumstances, they, find, they are incorporated in this psalm as meaningful places to express something of the condition of his soul. This becomes more clear when we see the picture of Mount Hermon in greater scripture. Mount Hermon is north of Palestine, the furthest extremity of the border there, And it is one of the tallest mountains that you'll find in the surrounding region. So often it is referred to in poetic imagery in Scripture as a tall and distant place. Thus, Mount Hermon illustrates as a meaningful place to express the psalmist's uh, feelings and and heart cry in this psalm. It illustrates the outskirts of banishment. He has had to run for his life as far as Mount Hermon. Not only has he had to run as far as Mount Hermon, but Mount Hermon is a high mountain, as I mentioned. But Mount Mizar, actually the word literally in the Greek is smallness or little. So it's kind of an idiom in these two pictures from pillar to post, from the heights to the depths, from high mountains to low mountains, from the Jordan to Hermon to Mizar, I have had to run for my life. But no matter how far the outskirts of this Situation and circumstance, this temporal circumstance has banished me, my soul, and my soul being cast down, therefore, I can still remember you. There's that shade of hope even in this psalm. Psalm 89, Mount Hermon, is referred to again. Its uh, height and its distance, its uh, grandeur is alluded to as a picture of God's sovereignty. Mount Hermon is compared to, in poetic form, the scope of God's power and control over all circumstances. Psalm 133, why don't you turn there with me? It's the third mention that I know of in the Psalms of Mount Hermon. And this indeed is a psalm of ascent. And it's a great contrasting parallel psalm to Psalm 42. And here, Mount Hermon represents something different. 
not a place on the outskirts of banishment, but indeed something like something to communicate an idea like the majesty of unity. Psalm 133 is just three verses. It's a song of ascents, you see there, of David. So this is a psalm that our psalmist in 42 wishes he were singing right now. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessed, the blessing, life forevermore. And so you see when you're reading the Psalms that places take on a poetic meaning. And so Mount Hermon here is, illustra- is illustrative of the psalmist banishment, yes, from where he'd rather be. But further on in the Psalms, we see a parallel with Psalm 42. If Psalm 42 was a psalm of descent, there is hope that he would rejoin with the voices of the worshipers in a psalm of ascent. And then Mount Hermon would not be seen as a place of banishment, but would be redeemed as a place of majestic unity, a place where brothers dwell together and worship the Lord in song. And this was the hope that the psalmist in, verse, in chapter 42 was holding out for. Secondly, dipping from the inkwell of circumstance, temporary situation, his surroundings, even the environment and geography, we find that there is a tempest-like soul condition that he writes of. Verses 8 and 9, excuse me, 7 and 8. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. When we see this picture in the scriptures of tumultuous seas, the chaotic surface of the waters, it's a picture of that frightful uh, eventuality of circumstances entirely outside of our hands and our control. Deep calls to deep. I take that to mean, I think we see here, that there's a, a sort of drowning flood or deluge that seems imminent and inevitable in the author's mind at the moment. He is about to be overtaken with a wave of the circumstances, the temporal circumstances around him, only to be followed by another and another Deep calling to deep to cover him over. And then it mentions the roar of your waterfalls. Again, the Hebrew, at least to my very limited knowledge, is a little ambiguous, but some of the older commentaries are interesting in this regard. Apparently on the sea surrounding Palestine, there was something like water spouts or tornadoes, cyclones that would happen sometimes over the sea. And these would gather water from the surface, collect rainwater in the sky, and make the surface of the sea very unpredictable. And it would be a fearful state indeed if a mariner would find his ship lost within one of these water spouts. And so it seems that our author is reaching into the language of nature, imagining, as we said before, in a boat on a sea threatened by waves, by being swamped by floods, by water spouts, waterfalls, and the breakers going over him again and again. And certainly... In his, his experience, this would be the overwhelming sense that he was dealing with in the moment. And so this is the voice of experience speaking to him. 
in your experience, judging only by your circumstances and your surroundings and what inevitably faces you today and probably tomorrow, how does this make you feel? Well, looking only at his surroundings, he certainly, like Peter, probably was fearful and began to sink within the ways. Or like Jonah felt, as Seth read earlier, when he crashed beneath the surface of that storm at sea, that he had breathed his last breath. The voice of experience is like the deep calling to deep, saying that you have no good reason by your sensory assessment of the situation alone for hope. You're undone. You're doomed. You'll be swallowed up, never to be heard from again. Yet, this is not the end of the story. There is another message that shortly follows, or indeed is embedded in this deep calling to deep. And it's the third time repeated, your. And this is the nevertheless sovereignty that our author records. Notice again our verse in question. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your ways have gone over me. Remember the testimony of Jonah that Mark read earlier in our service? You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Verse 3 of Jonah chapter 2. All your waves and your billows passed over me. I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. We go on to read in the words of hopeful closure in verse 9, But I, with sacrifice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah had the same hope as the author of Psalm 42. Though it seemed like all hope was lost, he prayed that he might once again rejoice in the temple, in the place of God's favor with his people. Where could he find that assurance even though the voice of experience was a suffocating, uh, suffocating experience of imminent death shouting to him, you are doomed, you are doomed? He could do so when he recognized that the God who created this earth commands the course of every waterspout and waterfall. He could do so as he realized that there is no breaker on the surface of the ocean that does not stand at attention and salute and say, yes, sir, at the command of our sovereign God. He could do so recognizing that no matter how deplorable his circumstances seemed at the moment, even as pictured by this, uh, by this poetic imagery of natural disaster and utter catastrophe, he could do so recognizing that not a sparrow falls without the Lord's notice and the utter governing power and ultimate authority of the Lord of glory over the universe has never and will never be thwarted. So for the tempest-tossed soul, there is the voice of the experience that shouts doom, yet there is the nevertheless sovereignty, that confession that announces hope. We see it in his waterfalls and his breakers and his waves. If he owns all these things and he owns us, then he certainly owns our destiny in the throes of our deepest trial. And finally, in this section, verses 7 and 8, we find again the tether of covenant. And this is illustrated in what I've, uh, some have said is the most valuable word in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew it has said, is translated in the ESV here, steadfast love in verse 8. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, 
and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And this word has said, steadfast love, is this sovereign intervention in covenant where the God of all glory and might has stooped low to make a promise to those who are unable to keep it and gives them enabling power to attach themselves to His promises that they, in spite of their sin, might be saved. Has said steadfast love is the gospel in a nutshell in the Old Covenant. And just these two words, steadfast love, are enough to get the psalmist through this difficult storm. It is the tether of his soul, that promise of Almighty God, the steadfast love of covenant assurance that will ultimately keep him and carry him through. Yes, during these times there are conflicting voices, but one voice rises above the cacophony. One voice has the last word, and this is the voice of God's promises in covenant saying to us, if you are in Christ, and saying to the psalmist at this time, regardless of circumstances, I love you, my child. My son's blood was shed for you, and I will receive the rewards of my suffering. Finally, in closing, we have the irony of the meantime. I say to my God, my rock, verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And again in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? This is very interesting, especially as we analyze one of the most popular questions in the human experience, one word, why? How many of us have been tempted to echo that question, maybe with some defiance, certainly disillusionment and bewilderment at times, I'm sure, with voice pointed toward the heavens, in light of a circumstance that we feel that we cannot bear or understand, we cry, Why, Lord? And so our psalmist can relate to us and we to him when we hear, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? First of all, in this conflict of soul, in this irony of the meantime where God has ordained that he go through this difficulty, he is weak of spirit at times and does cry out, In desperation, why have you allowed me to go through such a thing? But notice how he turns the question around. Before he has a satisfactory answer to that question in his experience, in the course of this confession, he rehearses it three times. He says again, verse 11, instead of why have you forgotten me, he turns the question to inward saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? No matter how difficult, suffocating and frightful our circumstances are, they are never so deep and dark as to justify ultimately the question, why have you forgotten me? He certainly has not. The real question isn't, why, Lord? Why, Lord, have you allowed this? Why have have you allowed me to go through this? The real question ought to be turned inwardly. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Has He not proved faithful to you in your salvation? Has He not proved faithful to you in the testimony of the saints who've gone before? Has He not proved faithful to you in giving you this magnificent love letter, His word to you that you did not deserve? Has He not proved faithful to you in forgiving you of your sins and satisfying the payment thereof and the blood of His Son? The real question is, why are you cast down, O my soul? And of course, the answer 
is our sinful weakness. And so we preach the Word of God to ourselves, and hopefully you feel the Word of God correcting you if you've fallen guilty or prey to this attitude or behavior that the psalmist can relate to today. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now, the answer to the... or There is a fulfillment of this psalm that is just amazing to behold. And the final verse I want to reference is in John chapter 4. You don't have to turn there with me necessarily, but I just want to read to you several verses that were uttered from the lips of our Messiah when he walked some of the same ground that the author of Psalm 42 alludes to. In John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, there's the object lesson of drinking, thirst, and water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, Jesus tells the woman at the well, will never be thirsty Uh, I will give him, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Do you recognize a parallel to our passage we're reading this morning? Remember how David opens up, I'm sorry, the author opens up his psalm, My soul thirsts for God like the deer pants for flowing streams. The object lesson of thirst, thirst unto death, has opened up and set the tone for this psalm. And so it is the object lesson that sets the tone for the exchange in John chapter 4. As Jesus, the fulfillment of the heart cry of the psalmist in chapter 42, echoes the answer, the hope, the fulfillment, and the promise to this woman at this time in the book of John. We continue to read in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this temple, the woman says to him, worshipped on this mountain, excuse me, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place that people ought to worship. Do you understand the, con- the context here? You see the woman was ostracized from the ordinary place of worship. There was some disagreement there. Just like the author of Psalm 42 was distressed of soul. Where should I worship? How can I worship? I am ostracized from the ordinary meeting place of the favor of the Lord. Verse 21 again in John 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. In truth, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Ultimate fulfillment of the psalmist's hope that was foreshadowed in Psalm 42 is found substantively in Christ in John chapter 4. In the context of thirst as an object lesson, Jesus answers the question of where to worship with the proclamation of new covenant glory. There is a trans-geographical now. It transcends geography, the reality of worship in Christ, because spirit and truth now indwell the believer. We can never be separated, never again, saint, if you're in Christ this morning, from the conditions of His favor. Because if we are in Christ, Christ is in us, and no matter where we are, we can worship Him in spirit and in truth. That was the answer to the psalmist's prayer, it's the answer to our prayer, and it's the answer to the enemy of our souls, no matter how deep 
the trial. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truths that we see revealed in your scriptures. We thank you for the assurance and the anchor and the hope that they represent for us. I pray, Lord, if we have, lo- if we have run to other things for security, that we would reject them and instead run to you. I pray if there are any scales on our eyes, Lord, that would remind us that Jesus Christ is our sufficient grounds and tether for our soul, the anchor that we may not be set adrift in a sea of apostate rebellion. I pray that we would return. Lord, I thank you for these times that we've had today worshiping you together. I pray that we would value them evermore each day as your soon return approaches and all that you may be glorified in your people and that in the deepest of trials and on the heights of the mountains, you might find in your people, Lord, a consistent testimony of the glory of God until you come and return for us, your bride. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.